There's nothing more important in all the world in the life of the believer than the Bible. God's Word is as important to us as God Himself. Because without the Word of God, we would never know God. Without God revealing to us who He is and what He has done, who we are, and what our our world is all about, we would be in utter darkness concerning everything. And so the Word of God is absolutely essential for every aspect of the Christian life. In Scripture, we are given a proper understanding and a proper knowledge of God. This is what separates us from all of the non-biblical, non-revelatory worldviews of the world, is that Scripture and Scripture alone is the basis for knowing and walking with God in a godless world. And so, we are very, very fortunate to have it. But I'll tell you one thing about the Word of God, that what Hebrews is telling us in this text is that before the Word of God becomes the sword of the Spirit in your hand, it is the sword in God's hand. And it is in His hand to decipher and to discern and to judge and to inspect the motives, the intentions, and the thoughts of our heart. So that the Word of God in the hand of God is a powerful weapon. It is a surgical tool to operate upon the heart of the believer. And therefore, what this text is all about is it's all about the Word of God in the hand of God. We're going to see various attributes of the Word of God, and we're going to see how that results in the accomplishments of the Word of God. But let me begin by talking about the attributes of the Word, because we're given several here. But let's talk about this passage exegetically, right? This section here, the Word of God. And you might think, wait a minute, but in the context of what we've been talking about, what in the context is he talking about the Word of God? Where? Well, I would remind you that at the beginning of chapter 3, he begins to launch into an exposition of Psalm 95. And so, Psalm 95 is predominantly what the author has in mind. That goes back to chapter 3, verse 7. And by the way, just as a little bit of an aside here, okay, we should learn at least the principle of the potency and the power and the practical application of how the author thinks about Old Testament texts. Did that hit anybody while we've been looking at these two chapters? The the fact that the author picks an Old Testament passage and then elaborates upon it to such a degree that it has immense relevance for your life and mine. Do you do that, in other words, in your own study? Do you take an Old Testament text and 
so exposit it and so study it and so drill down deep into the meaning of it that that old ancient text has so much contemporary relevance for your life today. That's the way we need to be reading the Old Testament, and furthermore, that's the way we ought to be profiting from the Word of God. I had to get that out of my system. Because contrary to so many people today telling us the Old Testament is not relevant for us, how often do we hear that? Oh, that's the Old Testament, as if it has no bearing on your life and mine. Well, that's not the way that Hebrews operates. But he takes us back to this reference with referring to the Word of God, to his use of Psalm 95. That is really the exegetical connection here. Now, of course, this does not mean that there is not a general principle for all of Scripture, not just the Old Testament. All of Scripture is the Word of God. As a matter of fact, that's the way he moves. He goes from talking about a particular passage in Psalm 95 to a general description of the whole counsel of God in the phrase, the Word of God. The Word of God should be a phrase that is, that just, we, we are so daunted by it. It should be a phrase that we are so impacted by Because the Word of God is the sum of all divine revelation. And this is what he's going to do. He's going to give us a vivid description of the Word of God by giving us various attributes of God's Word. First is the fact that the Word of God is living and active. It is living and active. This description here, the Word of God is living and active, is meant to arrest our attention. It is meant to arrest our minds so that we see the history of Israel and how relevant it is for our lives, lest we think that, again, it has no relevance for us today. Oh, it does. It has powerful implications for us today. The author tells us God's Word is, is, is alive. God's Word is alive. Some preachers like to talk about, well, or some people like to talk about preachers, oh, he really makes the Word come alive. Well, guess what? The Word doesn't need, uh, you know, uh, what's the word? It doesn't need to be resuscitated. The Word is alive, whether the preacher can do it or not. The Word is living. It is active. It is vibrant. It is organic. Now, three things. There are three things I want to point out here. Exegetically, it refers back to Psalm 95. Theologically, I think it's important for us to realize that Hebrews is pointing us back to the Old Testament, but that the Old Testament is dynamic for every believer in every age, and especially for us in the New Covenant age. It has a special significance because everything is pointing us to the climax of that history anyway, which is Christ. Now, practically, the Bible is absolutely indispensable because it imparts life itself. Now, that is not the meaning here. That is not his emphasis here. But the the fact that it is living and that it is active means that the Word of God possesses life-giving power. Life-giving power. If you come to church and you don't have a Bible in your lap, I don't think you understand what the Bible is that it is living and active and it's there so that you can interact with it as I'm preaching. I love to tell people, look at the text because it's valuable for you to have your eyes land on the Bible, to see it for yourself, to imbibe it, to ingest it, to, to take it in, to take it in. 
The Word of God is not dead. It is active. Now turn with me to 1 Thessalonians as we read from a different text. Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, the Apostle Paul claims this much for the people of God, that the Word of God is not dead, that the Word of God is not stagnant, but that it is alive, and guess what? It is at work in your life and in mine. I love it. He's, he commends the church in this way. We need to be commended. We should seek and we should desire to have our church commended in the same way as the Thessalonians are here. For this reason, we constantly thank God that when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as the word of men. This is just an incredible statement by the Apostle Paul. Isn't the word of God written by men, Paul? Well, certainly he knows that. But he says, but for what it really is. And I think there what he's tapping into is that there is a greater authorship behind the human authorship of Scripture, namely the divine authorship of Scripture, the Word of God. And now look at the practical application, which also performs its work in you who believe. See, the Word of God is working in you who believe. How is it working? Well, it's working by educating you as to who you are and who God is and what the world is and what history is and what the universe is about and the chief end of man and the chief purpose of man and the chief aim of life. That is what the Word of God is doing. It is convicting us. It is deciphering us. It is judging us. It is dissecting us in every way. It is evaluating our life, our spiritual life, our mental life, our emotional life, our practical lives, our marriages, our families, our churches, everything, our personal piety and our corporate gathering. The Word of God is judge over us, and we are called to yield ourselves to it. The next description shows us how it is that God can do this. It is described as being in comparison to a sharp sword. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. Now, this is referred to again in the book of Revelation where Jesus says to have a, a, a two-edged sword coming out of his mouth as a description, apocalyptic description of the word of Jesus that when he returns, the very word out of his mouth would be the very instrument upon which or by which he destroys his enemies and he smashes the nations. Sorry if you thought Jesus was just a surfer boy wandering around in the lilies of the valley. Jesus Christ is a ruling, reigning, sovereign, almighty, in, omnipotent king. And he will come back not as a meek little lamb, not as a hippie, but as the sovereign king of the universe who rids the universe of all of his enemies and protects and delivers and rescues his people. That is the true Jesus that no one on Fox News will ever utter. <laughs> It gives us a glimpse into what the Bible is. It is a weapon. It is a tool. It is an instrument. As I said, it is a surgical instrument in the hand of the great physician to decipher our hearts, our thoughts, as he goes on to say. It is meant to judge us in terms of judgment, in terms of salvation. 
It speaks of Scripture's effectiveness to produce the results that God wants to produce from His Word. Look at what Isaiah 55 verse 11 says. I can just read it to you. If it would take you too much time to go back into Isaiah 55, I can read it to you. This is what the Lord says, Yahweh, so will my word be which proceeds forth out of my mouth. It will not return me to me void or empty without accomplishing what I desire. See how the word is linked to his will? The will of God is accomplished by his word. He says, and without succeeding in the matter for which I sent it out. Think about that. The word of God is so effective in the hand of God, it accomplishes precisely what God wants to accomplish with it. You can, in other words, you can bank on the word of God for it to work. And so it, it, it just, it bewilders me when I think of people telling us in the context, say, of evangelism, as we're preaching the word of God, accurately articulating the gospel, giving to people the message of salvation out of the Bible, and people say, this is not working. You need to get creative. We need art. We need props. We need technology. We need a concert. That's effective. And I think, are you out of your mind? The Word of God, according to God Himself, cannot possibly fail when it is used for His purposes. He will accomplish precisely what He desires so that it will either be a, a tool in the hand of God to harden people in their unbelief or it will be a tool in the, word of God, in, the, in the hand of God to soften people for their faith and for their salvation. In the context, God's Word is for judging not necessarily for judgment, that is for condemnation, but it is that, but for judging man's heart condition. At this point, God's word is inseparable from God. It is God's word. It is the word which originates with God. It is the word that is spoken by God. It is the word that revolves around God, pertains to God, has to do with God, reveals God. In one sense, we could say that God's word is sharp and pierces man's heart in the same way that we can say God is sharp and he pierces God, man's hearts and he will judge people according to that word. It says in Romans 2.16, to make it more specific, the Apostle Paul says on that day, according to my gospel, God will judge the secrets of men through Christ Jesus how will he judge the secrets of men? Through the gospel or through Jesus? Both. It's inseparable. Jesus will judge people through the gospel. The gospel means that Jesus will judge people. I mean, it's inseparable. God's word is said to be sharper than any two-edged sword, which implies all sorts of different things. God's word enters into our heart with pinpoint precision. God is able to put his thumb precisely where the problems are in our lives. He is able to probe and to detect and with perfect precision where man's hearts have gone astray, where man's heart lies and fails and sins and disobeys. In vain, man attempts to hide from God. Look at verse 13. No creature is hidden from his sight. 
In vain, therefore, do we lie to God, just like Ananias and Sapphira did in Acts 5, and contend with God. It is in vain, according to Job 42, to question God. It is in vain for us to contend with the Almighty, Job goes on to say. This is the spiritual power of the Word of God. Scripture is called the sword of the Spirit. It is the same word that will proceed from the mouth of Jesus when he returns to judge the living and the dead. Now, the rest of the attributes that are mentioned here have to do with the activity of the Word of God. We can say this is an intransitive description. This is what it is intrinsically, inherently. This is the quality of the Word. Now, what does it do actively? Uh, What does it do positively? Well, We are told again that the Word of God is living and active. It is giving us basically two sides of the same equation. God's Word has organic character that accomplishes its work in us. Through the living Word, God's life comes to us in propositional form. Think about that. Through the living Word, God's life comes through us to the, through propositional form. That's why the psalmist in Psalm uh, 119, over and over, the life of God and the soul of man is brought to man through the Word. Amazing. From God's Word, we get conviction. From God's Word, we get wisdom, 2 Timothy 3.15. From God's Word, we get assurance. 1 Thessalonians 1, 4 through 5, we are assured by the Word. Do you lack assurance? Do you struggle with assurance? Do you ever contemplate your assurance? Am I saved? How do I know I am saved? Let the Word judge you. Immerse yourself in the Word of God. Open yourself up to the Word of God. Expose yourself to the Word of God because as Peter tells us, it is by the Word of God that we will grow and grace and knowledge and increase in the knowledge of God. That's right, 2 Peter 3.18. In Hebrews, God's Word is active to search our hearts in response to His redemptive work in Christ. In other words, what's going on in Hebrews is that the author of Hebrews is saying that what God's Word is doing in Hebrews is it's searching the heart and how it will respond to the gospel. That's the simplest way that I could put it. How do we respond to the message that was heard? How will we respond if you go back to chapter 3, verse 7? How do we respond to His voice when He speaks? Will we harden our heart? Will we provoke God? Will we test God? Will we go astray in our hearts? The Word of God will expose this. And the reason why it does that is the third thing. Not only is the Word of God living and active. Not only is the Word of God sharp, but the Word of God also penetrates. You see that there? It says back in chapter 4, verse 12. I'm getting ahead of myself here. I can't help it. I'm excited about the Word of God today, so if I'm talking a little fast, I'm sorry. It's not because of coffee. It's because of zeal, hopefully. For the Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit, pierced by the Word. In other words, the Word of God is able to penetrate into the very depth, into the very core, into the very recesses of who we are. 
We don't need to sit on a lounge couch and have a psychiatrist ask us, how does that make you feel? We need to come to the Word of God because He knows how you feel already. And He will tell you how to respond appropriately to the adversities in your life. So, we don't need psychology, we need theology. And I know that today that is virtually abandoned throughout evangelicalism. Sadly so. God's Word is able to penetrate beyond the walls that we put up before man. Before God, His Word penetrates all the facades that we can put up. And it gets to the very root of what is going on internally, in here, in the secret place. As the psalmist says, the secret place in the inner man, in the inner parts where no man sees. God's Word According to Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 14, the word God will bring every act to judgment, everything that is hidden, whether good or evil. But the piercing that is happening here is talking about what is going on within man as well as upon him. The author moves from the immaterial to the material, from the spiritual to the physical, from the non-corporeal to the corporeal aspects of man. This is important because, as you know, there is a great controversy surrounding biblical anthropology. What is man, after all? What is man? A question that never loses relevance in every generation. We are, we are caused to contemplate what is man. Biblical anthropology says something different than materialistic anthropology. Materialistic anthropology says you can do whatever you want with man as long as he's in the womb. Material anthropology says you can do whatever man, whatever you want with man as long as psychologically he believes that he is a she and she is a he. It all boils back down to anthropology. Who is man? What is man? Well, how, how did God design man? In our culture, God doesn't get to even have an opinion on the matter. And yet, that is precisely what's going on. But there is another controversy. Namely, when we ask the question, what is man? We are asking, what is man comprised of? Where well, there are two camps here. There is what is known as trichotomy and dichotomy. A trichotomist would say man is comprised of body, soul, and spirit. So that soul and spirit are two different things. A dichotomist would say no, man is comprised of soul and body, spirit and body, so that soul and spirit are essentially synonymous. And as a matter of fact, that's precisely what Hebrews is going to go on to do here. Notice how Hebrews operates with these synonymous terms that are interchangeable, theologically speaking. Look at verse 12 there at the end. He says it, that the, the, the word is piercing as far as a division of soul and spirit, both joints and marrow, and able to judge, watch this, the thoughts. Now, where do thoughts happen? Wouldn't you say thoughts happen in the mind? That's not what Hebrew says. The thoughts and the intentions of the heart. So now heart and mind are essentially synonymous. That's right. So, so, is, so is soul and spirit. 
That's why Mary, in Luke chapter 1, when she's extolling in the, in the Lord and she's giving her grand magnificat, she is saying essentially that she exalts in her spirit. She worships God in her soul. And these two things are synonymous. There is no difference. Worship God in your spirit for a minute and then stop and worship Him in your soul. Can you tell me the difference? No, you cannot. Worship God in your mind, and then worship God in your heart. Can you tell me the difference? No, you cannot. So that man is comprised of two things, material, immaterial, mind and body, soul and body. That is what man is. But it is these divisions that God is able to pierce it is between what is material and immaterial. It, 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 it matters to God what you do with both. God cares what you do with your body as much as what you do with your soul. Many ancient heresies have arose over time. Gnosticism, docetism, all of these platonic ideas that ended up resulting in all sorts of crazy religious practices, mainly dealing with asceticism or complete libertarianism, where either you care too much about the body or you don't care enough about it. Many of the Gnostics went into debauchery because they thought what you do with your external body means nothing. Means nothing. As long as the soul is devoted to spiritual things, what you do with your body is irrelevant. Well, that is not what the Bible teaches. We are told to worship God with our body as well as with our soul. The point of referring to this division, therefore, is to point out the material and the immaterial aspects of man. God knows what man is comprised of. He knows precisely how man is divided because he knows how to how to put man together. After all, he put man together. So how much more does God know what parts he is comprised of. And by the word of God and by the power of his word, he's able to discern our deepest thoughts and intentions. This is remarkable because this is the area that we can hide from everybody else. We can hide our, our true intent. We can hide our deepest thoughts, but not from God. Everything is open, naked, bare, exposed to God. And look at what he does, therefore. The fourth thing, not only... Does he penetrate? Not only is the Word of God sharp, not only is it living and active, not only does it penetrate, but it also is discerning. So the final attribute of the Word is that it is able to discern the inner thought life and thus the life of the soul within man. How God is able to do this is through sharp, the sharp precision of His Word. That's what we're doing when we expose ourselves to the preaching of the Word of God. We are exposing our souls, our hearts, and we are laying ourselves open to the Word of God to let it decipher, to let it cut through any false motives, to let it discern what is good and what is bad, to put its thumb on the areas that we need to repent of and of the areas that we need to continue to strengthen. God's Word is able to do that. He knows if we're hardening our heart. He knows if we're provoking Him. He knows when precisely our hearts are beginning to go astray. Just like God knew that the children of Israel were going astray in their heart because of disobedience and un belief. Everyone became aware of what God knew, and this is remarkable as well, because even though 
at some point, the amazing thing is that even though it is secret, that is, what is the intent, what is the motive of our heart, and it's only known by God and by ourselves, eventually, by God's judgment, it will be known to all, just like with Israel. At some point, everyone became aware that God swore in His anger that they would not enter His rest. The same thing can be true today of apostasy. The minute a person goes out from among us, we can say they were never of us. And so that the judgment of God in the inner life of that person becomes manifest. And we can see it. The nature of the heart becomes known by the judgment of God. It is the Word of God. It is because of transgressing His Word, disregarding His Word, violating His Word, disobeying His Word, that we will show whether or not we have an evil, unbelieving heart that causes one to depart from the living God. Now listen to this because this runs contrary to so much of religious discussion today. Turn your back on the living Word of God and you turn your back on the living God. It's that simple. It's that simple. This is not what liberalism has taught. This is not what many neo-Orthodox liberal theologians like Karl Barth and others would teach. They would teach that man has a different relationship to the, to the propositional truth of Scripture, that he has this existential battle going on inside. This is also what the lordship uh, theologians have gotten wrong is that you can actually have an external profession. A, you can have a verbal profession, but have no obedience. No, that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that if you don't have obedience to the Word of God, then you don't have a relationship with God. After all, it was Jesus who said, if you love me, you obey my commands. It's that simple. The, tr the two are inseparable. So, what does the Word of God accomplish? Those are some of the attributes, but what does it accomplishes? There are two things mainly, is that it exposes us both to the knowledge of God and to the justice of God. Because of God's soul-piercing Word that goes beyond even the subatomic molecular level down to the truly invisible aspect of man, God's people are made to feel an incredible accountability to God. Our lives are in fact lived in the presence and before the all-seeing eye of God. Look at the text. There is no creature hidden from His sight. Now turn with me to Psalm 139. You know that I had to hit this psalm because this psalm is so weighty, it is so... It is so convicting and it is so illuminating as to the way that God sees things. Psalm 139, beginning in verse uh, 1, the psalmist declares, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you understand my thoughts from afar. Isn't that amazing? You scrutinize my path. My lying down and are intimately acquainted with all of my ways. Scripture says that God knows the steps of man. He knows where you're going. Even before there is a word on my tongue, Behold, O Lord, you know it all. Isn't that amazing? 
You have enclosed me behind and before, and you laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Are you starting to get a little bit freaked out? Because you should. Because what this is saying is that God is everywhere. And that there's no place on earth, no crevice in the world. There is no, you can't jump into a submarine and go down into the depths of the sea. You can't jump on a rocket and fly out into outer space like Star Trek. You can't get beamed up, beamed down, beamed out. You can't go anywhere where God will not already fully be. John Piper tells the story of a wonderful little spider that brought him a lot of joy. And he points out how this spider brings God more joy than him because this spider, you have to understand, is a tiny little insect creature that resides at the bottom of a lake. He goes up to the top of the surface of the water, and what does he do? He gets a bubble of air. What does he do with that air? He goes back down to the bottom of the lake where he has formed a little cocoon. He blows the air into the cocoon, crawls inside, and seals it up and lives in the cocoon. What in the world is that for? It's for the all-seeing God who takes great and marvelous pleasure in that tiny little spider. <laughs> you know, people talk about aliens and why do they do that. There has to be something out there all of that can't exist for nothing. You know, the primary error of that thought is that man think that the universe exists for us. It does not. The universe, the, the expanse and the vast innumerable stars and galaxies do not exist for us, my dear friends. It is not an anthropocentric galaxy. It is a theocentric galaxy. In other words, it is all for him. He takes pleasure in his handiwork. After he created everything on the seventh day, it said he rested. And what theologians surmise of that is that God resting means he looked over everything that he made and he took great, great pleasure in it. Are you starting to get a little bit freaked out? You should. Because there is a healthy fear of the Lord that I am praying that will come upon us all. The psalmist says, such knowledge is too wonderful for, it's too high, I cannot attain it. And this is what man does not want to hear. They don't want to hear of an infinite God. They are if afraid, terrified of infinity. They want a practical God. They want a best friend Jesus. Jesus is my homie, t-shirts. How about Jesus is the infinite, all-knowing, all-seeing, ever-holy God of all the universe, knows everything, knows, sees everything, can do everything. How about that t-shirt? It's probably too much on a t-shirt, I know. Where is the infinite? Christ! The word hidden there in the text, suggests that we are incapable of escaping God's piercing eyes. We cannot hide no matter what we do. It implies also what we know about ourselves, that is that man, 
that worm that he is, is always trying to hide from God. From From the very beginning, man has been trying to hide from God, has he not? Where are you, Adam? I was afraid, Lord, and so I hid from you in the garden. And it happens again, does it not? In chapter 4, after Cain killed his brother Abel, Cain tried to hide what he had done. And man left to himself, this is precisely what he will do. He will try to hide from God. He will try to run from God. Romans 3.11, man always goes astray. But God's sight means that we are accountable to him nevertheless. You see where it says there, there is no creature hidden from his sight. The word sight or from his sight, whenever it is attributed to God in the Bible, it always stresses the fact that we have a a judgment seat accountability to God. That God, that what we do, we do in the presence of the judge that we do in the presence, whether we are accepted in His sight, whether we are justified in His sight, whether we minister in His sight, whether we preach in the sight of God. All of it stresses that we are accountable and that we will give an account. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 17, the Apostle Paul said, His whole life was lived under that awesome reality of the ever-gazing God. 2 Corinthians 2, 17. We are not like many peddling the word of God. That means preaching for money. Preaching for money. Ministering for money. He says that's not what we're, for, what we're, we're about. In the pastoral epistles, Paul says, not for sordid gain. He says, but from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. That is Paul's way of saying, I am acutely aware of my accountability before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ, that one day I will give an account for every word that I ever preached. As evangelists, we like to tell people that, don't we? You know, you'll give an account for every word. Have you broken the law? Well, how about we turn those fingers back on ourselves? You know, we will give an account for every word too. Now, I'm going to develop this, and if you feel yourself sinking down into a pit, I will rescue you from that pit, but not until the end, okay? Because the second thing that it produces here is accountability not only to the knowledge of God, but to an all-holy God. An all-holy God. Hebrews reminds us that we are accountable to an all-just God. God. All things, look what it says, verse 13. The last part of verse 13 there. All things are open, laid bare to the eyes of Him with whom we have to do. The reason this is all so powerful is because of our exposure to the being of God. We are accountable to Him. It would be enough if God made us accountable to one of His holy servants or one of His holy angels. But this is, not what, this is not the case. We are accountable 
to God and to his holiness. To the same God that Hebrews will go on to say, God is a consuming fire. He is a divine fireball that when it comes into contact with unglorified flesh, it must, by his very nature, incinerate you. This is what it means to be accountable. This is what it means to reckon with him with whom we must deal. So in other words, do business with God now because you will do business with God later. I always remind college students when I'm trying to communicate the gospel to a young college student, he or her, friends are around, the mocking goes on, the language, the blasphemy, all of that. I like to remind them because, oh, I hope God put this in their mind and don't haunt them with this, right? When they're in bed at night, after they've done terrible things on the weekend, that I remind them, you will not have your friends with you on the day of judgment. You won't have the power of the mob. It will be you and God. And Jonathan Edwards says, the day of judgment will be so terrifying that we would wish that we would be anything other or anyone other than who we are. You're going to wish that you were a leaf or a toad or a rock or a piece of dirt under the ground. You would wish that the mountains would fall on top of you in order to hide you from the presence of the Holy Lamb of God. That's what the Bible teaches meeting God will be like especially for those that do not believe. And so therefore, we may deceive ourselves. God is not deceived. After Cain killed Abel, do you know what he did? He adopted a new identity. I am not my brother's keeper. See, he has signed to himself a fake identity. He didn't want to be who he was, a murderer. And we can give ourselves any fake identity, my dear friends, but like Cain, the rotting corpse of our sin is still out in the field for God to see. And so we can deceive ourselves, we can change our identity, we can say anything we want. And oh, what will God hear on that day? I was a skeptic. I didn't have enough evidence. What will he hear? I just, I just, I couldn't help myself. I was born that way. What will we hear? I couldn't go to church. God knows that I respect him and the man upstairs and all that is fine and well. But I was one of the busy ones. I was too busy. You can give yourself whatever identity you want, my friend. Your rotting corpse is in the field and God sees it. God knows you as you truly are, not as you want him to know you. Not as you would like for him to know you. I had a friend who told me once in all sincerity, if you knew who I really was, you probably wouldn't like me. Wow. And you know what's amazing about God's grace? Is God does know who he is and he does like him. Why? Well, this is a sneak peek into next week. But thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God, for our high priest. Because up to this point, my dear friends, we are toast. A God that is that omniscient, 
all-knowing, a God that is that holy, that righteous, that is so deep, he's that eminent, that he's inside of us, searching us, his word, like an x-ray machine, spiritually seeing right through us, knows everything about us, up until this very point, I don't know about you, but without Jesus, I'd be very ashamed of myself. I'd be cowering in a fetal position, saying, oh God, not me. And yet, I am so grateful for Jesus, our great high priest. Oh, you got to come back tomorrow. Because, or next week, sorry. I wish church was tomorrow. <laughs> One day there will be never-ending church. Hallelujah. John Brown, in his Puritan commentary, wonderful commentary, he says, God is acquainted with the inmost thoughts and feelings. He knows the forming design and the rising desire. There is no possibility of imposing on him by false professions or by plausible appearances. He requires of us conformity of mind and heart to him. If we do not wield it or yield it, he is perfectly aware of this and can and will deal with us, not according to what we appear to be, but according to what we really are and what he knows us to be. It is not only a truth that we all must appear, or rather be made manifest, before the judgment seat of Christ, but already, right now, in this very moment, our thoughts are manifest before him, and he knows us much more intimately than we know ourselves. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we are weak. We're failures. And Father, I have never felt so inadequate to preach a sermon in my life than to preach knowing how miserably short I fall and knowing that, Lord, that you require so much God, I confess and I confess on behalf of everyone here, we need a mediator. We need a priest. We need someone who can sympathize with us. And so, Lord, like never before, we tell you now, thank you for Jesus. Our advocate, our mediator, our high priest, our sacrifice, the atoning Lamb of God that takes away our sin, that makes us pure so that we can be pure as snow, washed by His blood. Father, how can we say thank You enough? We cannot, but for all eternity, O oh God, You will give us the strength to do just that. Please, Lord, search our hearts now. Anyone here who has not done business with God, for whatever reason, ultimately it just comes down to wickedness. It just comes down to self. It just comes down to, as John Brown says, you don't want to yield. You don't want to submit. Oh God, but we know one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess 
that Jesus Christ is Lord. And so, Father, by your grace, give all of us the grace to do business with you today, to bow ourselves low before you, to confess and forsake our sin. Father, reveal to us just how valuable it is to know Jesus, the surpassing infinite value of knowing Christ Jesus our Lord, because like the Apostle Paul says, we don't want a righteousness that is of our own. It's not good enough. It won't cut it. It won't cut mustard on the day of judgment. We need a righteousness that is by faith in Jesus Christ, a righteousness that comes from God. And so, Lord, help us to put all our weight there, all of our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, our sympathetic high priest. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.